Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Joy, for, for that, uh, just helping us to understand a wee bit more about uh, Paul's situation. Uh, and good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to see everybody uh, here this morning. And the fact that uh, some of you who were here last week have come back this week, uh, I'm really pleased about, and I'll take that as something of an encouragement. Um, I'm hoping that um, so, at least some of you have done your homework from last week. Uh, in fact, I know that some of you have actually done your homework because actually I had, a, I had, uh, I had one or two uh, texts uh, just hours after the service boasting that, in fact, they'd already done it, uh, the SWATs. Um, but but uh, well done, all of you who have already uh, read uh, Philippians in the last, in the last week. Uh, uh, let me encourage you to do that again in the coming weeks. Uh, I think that's going to be a real help. What you'll find, actually is in the process of us studying the text together and then you reading it again and again, what happens is you kind of get to know it. It starts to get under your skin. It starts to become a part of you, actually. And that's where we really want to get to. Just to mention to you again the website materials. Yes, you can, you can go on and listen to uh, the sermon. Uh, you can also post a question. So there's an Ask the Preacher section. So uh, do... Um, do put your questions, if you have any burning issues after anything I say in the services, um, put your question in. We had one question last week, um, uh, a very good question it was too. Thank you for that. So uh, happy, to, <laughs> happy to engage with, uh, with any of you who, uh, who would like to take it a little bit further. Also, if I can commend to you the evening service when we'll be doing a little bit more on Philippines, and uh, Chris will be, uh, will be helping us with that. We were talking last week about defiant faith. Faith that stands up in the midst of difficulty and crisis, and it declares humbly but boldly its trust in the goodness of God. I'm sure that some of you have been in situations this week that have needed that. Some situations that have been a real challenge to you. This week I was listening to some old Tom Petty songs. Aging rocker that I am. And one of my favourites is a song called Won't Back Down. And this is what he says. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. No, I'll stand my ground, won't be turned around, and I'll keep this world from dragging me down, and I won't back down. Now, I don't know what Tom was getting at when he wrote that song, but to me, it really helps me think about the sort of faith that we're learning about here in Philippines. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. In the face of difficult circumstances, what are we going to do? Are we going to face them with defiant faith? Or are we going to back down? This morning we're going to talk a bit more about this defiant faith that we find in Philippians as we talk about the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, we thank you that you're here amongst us. We pray that you would help us as as we consider together your word We pray that your spirit would come amongst us and help us to turn our hearts towards you and to be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the letter to the Philippians, we have the Apostle Paul at his most appealing. Paul sometimes can be a bit difficult to comprehend. 
as the author of Second Peter admits. He says that Paul's letters are hard to understand. Polycarp, who was a second century Christian, complained that neither he nor anybody else was able to follow the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul. And I guess we've all probably felt a wee bit like that as we've read the New Testament from time to time. Times Paul can be pugnacious and unyielding, as we find him in the letter to the Galatians, when he's faced with Christians who disagreed with his law-free gospel. He proclaims his opponents cursed, and he wishes that they'd go and castrate themselves. That's the sort of language he uses. At times he can be defensive and rude to his opponents, like he is in 2 Corinthians. At times he seems to contradict himself, as he does in Romans, as he seems to do in Romans when he talks about the Jewish law. But here in this letter to the Philippians, we find him quite straightforward. And once we know a little bit about what's going on with him, he is really quite inspirational. As our telephone call brought out, Paul wrote, when Paul wrote to his friends at Philippi, he was in a Roman prison. Scholars debate exactly where he was. The balance of probability is that he was in Rome itself having made an appeal to Caesar after being arrested on the grounds of disturbing the peace. And you can read about that in Acts 25. Paul makes it clear in his letter that he's actually on a capital charge. Verses 20 and 21 of uh, chapter 1 show that at the time of writing, he was unsure as to how it was all going to go. He's confident, though, that in the end he's going to be released. And he hopes that he's going to be able to visit the Philippines again, as you get in verses 24 and 25. Actually, of course, what happened was that Paul did end up being executed by the Romans. Christy and I visited Rome during the summer, and we had the privilege of visiting the St. Paul Basilica just outside Rome. And it's an absolutely magnificent uh, building, and, and we had a wonderful time. Uh, purports to be built on the site of Paul's burial. Um, so it was wonderful going to, to see that. But here and everywhere in Rome that you have statues or paintings or mosaics of Paul, you find him holding a scroll in one hand, representing his learning and teaching, and a sword in the other, representing the way that he met his death, executed by beheading. <clears throat> Interestingly, in passing, this year was announced by the present Pope to be the year of St. Paul. So I guess as we, um, and and what, the whole year is really about the celebration of Paul because it's the 2000th uh, anniversary of his birth, apparently. Um, So I guess by having this this series on Philippians, we're really getting into the spirit of it all, and, and I guess the Vatican might be quite pleased that we're that we're doing that, so that's, that's pretty good. Anyway, Paul is in prison uh, with a very uncertain future. And prison, of course, in the ancient world was a lot different from prisons in our modern Western democracies, uh, Guantanamo Bay accepted possibly. Uh, but when Paul talks about being poured out as a drink offering in 2.17, knowing how to cope with being brought low in 4.12, and being engaged in conflict in 130, we can be sure that he's not talking metaphorically. He's not exaggerating. He's in prison 
probably in chains and dependent on others like Timothy and Epaphroditus to provide the basics of company and food. Combined with the hardship and discomfort is the uncertainty about the future, the very real possibility that he's going to be taken to meet a bloody death at the hands of the Romans. And if all that weren't enough, there's another problem. It seems that all the Christians in Rome were not being entirely supportive of Paul. Some were definitely. They had been inspired by Paul's imprisonment on behalf of Christ to go and spread the good news about Jesus. Verses 14 and 16 of chapter 1. Others, surprisingly perhaps to us in verse 17, are preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry. I think they seem to have a view that they were going to make Paul feel worse in his situation. And the words that Paul uses to describe this in verse 15 are actually very strong words. And one commentator thinks it may be that Paul's Christian opponents were trying to cause him as much trouble as possible in his pre-trial detention, mobilizing ill will and bad feeling and maybe even trying to prejudice the outcome of his trial. Who were these people that were doing this to him? Well, we don't really know But we do know that in Paul's letter to the Romans, which was written about five years or so before, that there were decided tensions in the Roman church. We read about that in chapters 14 and 15 of Romans. It talks about the strong and the weak. The church was divided over, over uh, over dietary considerations. And this is probably along the lines of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So it may be that relations have deteriorated further by the time that Paul is uh, in prison and he's writing to the Philippians. And some of these Christians feel so badly about Paul that they want to make his situation even worse. Now sometimes I think we have this sort of rose-tinted view of the very first Christians. Everybody was in harmony. They were spreading the good news of the gospel about Christ. But actually the New Testament reveals for us quite a different picture Throughout Paul's lifetime, there was a great controversy raging across the Christian churches about one issue. And that was, did a person have to be Jewish? Did they have to follow the Jewish law in order to be a follower of Christ? And some Christians said, yes, of course you do. It's a Jewish story. It's a Jewish God. It's a Jewish Messiah. It's Jewish scriptures. Well, you have to follow the law. But Paul championed the view that the Jewish law was utterly unnecessary. And he was bitterly opposed by some other Christians. And here in Rome, it looks like this old controversy was rumbling on with some of the Roman Christians being far from supportive of him. Lack of unity in the church, self-aggrandizement of preachers, petty-mindedness of Christians, sadly, is a story as old as the church. But how much this opposition must have hurt Paul? If any of you have ever experienced bad feeling and opposition from other Christians, you'll know that it's one of the worst feelings in the world. If you've ever had to go through such a situation, I can tell you from my own experience, it just feels like a betrayal. And I wonder, has anybody gone through that? I wonder, has anybody here this morning maybe going through that where other Christians, for whatever reason, are making life difficult for you? The natural tendency in that situation is to lash out back, or maybe to retreat into self-pity, or complain bitterly to God and, of course, to others. Paul's attitude here, I think, is liberating for us. 
he finds it in himself to rejoice that God's purposes are being taken forward. He's not prepared to allow himself to be tied up in knots about the betrayal by these other Christians. Yes, he finds it hurtful. No, he doesn't deny what's going on. But he's able to get past his own feelings by looking at the bigger picture of God's purposes and has the faith to see God at work. And that's a challenge, I think. If any of us have faced this sort of situation, that's a challenge. But it's the way of faith. It's the way of love. And Paul exemplifies it for for us here. In the verses Philip read earlier, chapter 1, verses 20 to 24, we get a great great picture, excuse me, we get a great picture of Paul's faith in the midst of his precarious and difficult situation. Now, we don't get too much of a, well, things are hard, but I'm going to hang on in there. Just pray for me, brother, sort of attitude from Paul. Now, I'm a great fan of the the blues. I love the raw emotion and the, the feel of the Delta blues. As Robert Johnson, the father of the blues, once said, the blues is a low-down shake and chill. But I'm not sure if Paul, was, if he was around now, would really warm to the blues. Actually, for a man in the situation that he's in, Paul is really quite remarkably upbeat. Whatever happens, whether he's released or executed, Christ is going to be honored. And that, it seems, is the bottom line for Paul. That's amazing. How can you say that, Paul? Though you are rotting in jail, you're facing death, and even some of your friends are opposing you, and you can talk about eager expectation and hope. What is going on? Is Paul some sort of suffering junkie? Is he some lunatic who actually really deserves to be locked up, that he could talk like this? There's two things that are underpinning Paul's attitude, and we get to understand these in verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Living for Paul is all about Christ. If he lives on, then he's going to be fruitful, as he says in verse 22. Life is full, life is fruitful, life is abundant if it's a life defined by Christ. Paul knew that to the core of his being. Before he met the risen Christ, Paul had lived a blameless life, as he tells us in the verses that we read earlier. He had been zealous in his attempts to please God. He was born in a great tradition. He was part of God's chosen people. He had every advantage. But having met Christ and having experienced the vibrant life of the Spirit of God within, Paul knew for certainty that everything in life, if it was not defined by Christ, was just garbage. It was just rubbish. It was just a write-off. For Paul, having Christ living in him, having a, a life hidden in Christ with God, having his whole existence defined by Christ was the very essence of a fruitful and fulfilling life. Paul knew deeply and profoundly that the only thing in life that matters is gaining Christ. How well we need to hear Paul this morning. How closely we need to listen to the Spirit of God in these words and to become the imitators of Paul, as he says in 3.17. Because we're bombarded every day with different messages telling us what we need to be real people, to be fulfilled and happy. 
It's the real thing. I'm loving it. You're worth it. Make the most of now. Don't leave home without it. Buy it. Sell it. Love it. Product after product is pushed at us with the message that we desperately need it if we're going to be fulfilled and happy. You're not living if you're not wired up and broadbanded. If you've only got an 80 gig iPod, well, you're not at the game. If you don't have a sophisticated smell, if you aren't sculpting your body in the gym, if you aren't getting rid of the the wrinkles and the droops, if you're not changing your car every year or two, if you're not shopping in Victoria Square, or easing your way through life with copious amounts of TV and sex and alcohol, we're blasted every second of the day with messages from the advertisers and the media. It's hard to switch off and to see, actually, it's all false. It's all transient. It's all passing. It's not actually real. It's like Neo in The Matrix. Many of you have seen the movie The, the Matrix. It's been out for quite a few years now. Uh, and in The, in the Matrix, um, our hero Neo is brought out of the safety of a little cocoon that he's living in. If you've never seen it, he's, he's living in a little cocoon um, uh, where, where his brain is being fed with images of, of, the real, of, uh, of, of what is supposed to be the real world, and he's living a life which looks real, but actually, it's all an elaborate mirage. His brain's fed with stuff that isn't the real world, and he's alive, but only barely alive, and he's no idea what the real world actually is like until he meets Morpheus. Morpheus shows Neo two pills, a blue pill and a red pill. If Neo chooses the blue pill, he goes back to the blissful ignorance of his cocoon and the matrix. If he chooses the red pill, then his eyes will be opened to see what is really real. As Bob Dylan says, you've got some big dreams, baby, but in order to dream, you've got to still be asleep. When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? A never-ending consumerist machine never lets up. And it's hard not to think that the dream is the reality. This morning we need to take the red pill. And we need to let our reality be reawakened by the word of God. We need to close our ears for once to the siren call of the voices all around us. And to hear Paul tell us that living, real living, is Christ. Following his countercultural way of love and forgiveness and peace and everything else, everything else is just so much garbage. Second thing that underpins Paul's amazing attitude in his desperate situation is this, his sense of confidence in the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ is raised from the dead, Because Christ has gone beyond the bonds of death, so too will Paul and all those who follow Christ. Death, says Paul, is gain. Now what's going on here? Is Paul so fed up with his terrible situation that he just wishes it would all be over? Has he given in to to despair that he could say such a thing? Dying is gain. 
Far from it, actually. Paul relishes life. He's rejoicing in the midst of his circumstances. He wants to come and visit the Philippians. But if it's not to be, if the Romans do take his life, then Paul has this confidence that dying is gain. Because death for him will simply be a transformation into the presence of his Lord and Savior, who himself has conquered death. Look what Paul says in chapter 1. Uh, chapter 3. Everything is rubbish. All that matters is this, knowing the power of God's Christ's resurrection, whether that is in life or in death. For Paul, his Christian faith stood or fell on this crucial point. Did Christ actually, really, bodily rise from the dead? In his letter to the Corinthians, he makes this quite explicit. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is worthless. We're just pitiful. There's no hope. We might as well just live like the pagans. And you see, it was this vital factor that completely changed Paul's life on his road to Damascus because he had met the risen Christ. If Israel's God had vindicated this crucified Jesus, this man who by Paul's Jewish tradition was supposed to be cursed. If God had vindicated him by raising him from the dead, then everything in the world had changed. Jesus was the Messiah, he was the king, and the rule of Israel's God had broken into the world to completely transform it. Everything had changed. And it was this single reality that turned Paul's life on his head at this point. Jesus was alive. And it's this reality that sustains Paul at the point at which he writes to the Philippians. Rotting in a Roman prison cell, betrayed by his fellow believers, hungry and uncomfortable, Jesus was alive. God had raised him from the dead. And if God had started the end-time resurrection with Jesus, then he, Paul, was sure in due course to share in that resurrection. Paul's resurrection from the dead was as sure to happen as the fact that Jesus' resurrection had already happened. Which is why Paul is so terribly confident that dying can only be gain. Beyond the grave lies the immediate presence of Christ and the resurrection of his body. And that's why Paul is so strong-minded in the danger of a situation, why he is so courageous. Because Christ's resurrection is a reality, a firm foundation upon which his faith is based. Because Christ lives, because Paul knows and believes that in the depths of his being, so he too, Paul, will know life beyond the grave. How well, again, we need to hear Paul this morning. To have a faith that reaches forward to attain to the resurrection from the dead. To let the reality of the actual resurrection of Jesus permeate our minds and our very beings. Because if Jesus did actually, really, bodily rise from the dead, then it changes everything for us. Because this world and all we can achieve and earn and spend and joy is not the be-all and end-all of our existence. There is a much greater reality into which we've been ushered. Our lives are not simply about us and our achievement and our enjoyment. If Christ truly has been raised, then God is transforming the world. And there is power to join with him in that process of transformation. There's power to live. There's power to live free from the power of selfishness and sin. There's power to face that last enemy that we will all face. 
that of death itself. Because we know that because he has been raised and transformed, we too will be raised and transformed. And death simply provides the transformation into his actual presence. I wonder this morning, can we hear the alternative reality to which Paul is pointing us to? For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Turn a deaf ear to all the other voices calling to us, seducing us, deceiving us, and hear the reality. To live, really to live, is Christ. A life defined by him and his reality, and to die is gain. Let's get God's perspective on our lives this morning. Christ is alive, and we too will live beyond this life because of him. And that startling, amazing, earth-shattering reality enables us to look beyond the ordinary and the mundane and to see our lives as part of God's bigger picture. And it gives us hope and courage in those most difficult of life circumstances. When we, when, when we come to the point when those that we love and we ourselves face the last great enemy. Paul says he hears the upward call of God. He tells us he's straining forward to what lies ahead. He knows that there is a greater reality to which he is called other than the poor circumstances in which he finds himself. And that reality is the reality of the risen Lord Jesus, which he strains forward to participate in. Can we hear him this morning? Can we let his faith and his courage inspire us? Can we open ourselves to the risen Christ this morning and let his reality fill us afresh? Can we let it transform us and send us back into our circumstances from this place to face them again with fresh courage, fresh defiant faith, and fresh action? Perhaps some of us this morning feel rather defeated. Maybe we feel brought down by our circumstances. Maybe by our own feelings. Where we are seems all there is. And the difficulty of our circumstances has robbed us of a sense of the vibrant life of Christ. I wonder, are there any here who feel like that this morning? Maybe some of us are aware that we've been listening to the wrong voices and our lives have become empty because we've tried to define ourselves by all the wrong things. The house packed full of all the latest and best and the parties and the clothes just don't cut it. And in the end, we feel empty and we know we've taken the blue pill. Maybe some of us just feel this morning a bit stale We've lost that sense of the fundamental life-giving reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Spirit of Jesus is here amongst us to touch us. Each one of us this morning. I wonder can I invite you just now to bow your heads as we pray. And let's open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to the Holy Spirit. And let the reality of the risen Christ touch us and inspire us and motivate us. Lord, we thank you that you are here amongst us. We thank you for 
the reality of your love and your life. We thank you this morning that Jesus has risen from the dead. And Lord, each of us, wherever we are, Lord, in the midst, maybe some of us, of difficult circumstances, Lord, we just pray that you'd lift our heads again and you'd give us fresh courage and fresh faith inspired by your very life. So, Lord, come and touch us now as we give our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.